1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. All right, we have Rosalind Matheson in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio today. She's executive editor for international government for Bloomberg News based in London. But we have her here in the States this week. We found out in the last hour, Matt, that she is Australian from some little, little town. What's the name of the town again, Roz?
3: It's called Gumbunji.
1: Gumbunji?
3: Gumbunji. It's an indigenous name.
2: Wow. Go figure. I mean, I, I, I don't know. One day, me and Roz traveled to a remote town in Austria to interview the former head of the FBI, James Comey, together. Really? Was that? What were was we in Austria? Austria? We were. Yeah. yeah. That was bad. awesome. <laughs> yeah. That was such a cool. uh I mean, you know, he had just written a book, and obviously it was like Comey versus Trump. Yep. But he's an amazingly fascinating and also really tall dude
3: extremely tall (laughs) yeah
4: Yeah.
1: ross explain to us what's happening in london today folks are telling us we need to pay attention to a vote that's going on in parliament what's going on over there
3: well, that's right. So it seems like enough of his own lawmakers have had enough of him. And so they've um, submitted letters calling for a leadership vote on his um, him leading the Tory party, which of course means his leadership of the country as a whole. So that vote will happen in a couple of hours. Today it goes It takes about two hours for it to happen. They file into a room one by one and cast their vote, yay or nay, and then there's an outcome. It looks like at this point he will probably win that vote um, because they need... 180 Tory lawmakers to go against him. Uh, But the question is, what is the damage that's being done simply by having this vote happen in the first place? And what is the margin by which he would presumably win this vote? It could be quite tight and tighter than he would like. And that suggests, of course, that that, uh, the knives will be out for him, even despite the outcome today, potentially.
2: But the base case is that he wins, right? Because... um His own party is bringing this vote essentially, and it's a system that I think a lot of Americans are unfamiliar with. They have this committee, 1922, it all seems so old and weird, Um, but what if they lose? They're bringing on an election that they're sure then later to lose. Well, that is
3: the risk also from this, is he might win, Uh, And then he might decide to call an election to try and get a fresh mandate from the public or to get rid of some of these Tory rebels. But
2: But why? How could he? I mean, they're experiencing inflation just like we are. And they're doing very little about it, just like we are. I mean, people are a lot of people are being driven into poverty by these high energy prices right well
3: exactly and all the polling shows that going to an election anytime soon would be very self-defeating for the tories um because uh, of all the things that you mentioned particularly the state of the economy inflation the idea has not delivered on his promises to bring development to areas in northern england um and so on he came in of course in a landslide win um in in 2019 with a very large majority for a british prime minister and that's all seemingly evaporated at this point um but he may decide just to go that because he is a very charismatic uh politician he's a very charismatic campaigner maybe he thinks somehow if he can call an election and get out there he can somehow rally the faithful and get enough voters back for the tories but it's a very big ask given what we're seeing at the moment in the polling
1: all right let's switch gears uh since we have you in studio i want to cover broad range here. Uh, Ukraine, boy, we're in our th- going into our fourth month, I guess, uh, over there in Ukraine. Is there a consensus amongst the folks that really follow this closely, how this might play out here? It, or is this just going to be a long, long slog?
3: Well, it's certainly hitting that kind of grinding war of attrition, which we would imagine could go on for an extended period. You're seeing Russian troops make incremental gains and then get pushed back again and then further gains, but certainly holding some of the ground that they've taken in the east of Ukraine, at this point, controlling about 20% of Ukrainian territory either way and very much entrenching themselves there. So what you'll see is potentially months and months and months of this um, on very sort of like small ball fighting that's going on on the ground and then the question is what does the rest of the world do with that Um, even if they ship in more and more weapons particularly artillery does that change the course of the war or are we stuck with this for the foreseeable future and at some point as you see France and Germany uh, and others sort of dipping their toe into the water, does the Ukrainian president need to negotiate um, with, with Russian, uh, the, Russian, prime, the pre- Russian president? And does that in turn involve him agreeing to cede territory?
2: What, what do we know about the casualties that the Ukrainians are, are facing? Or, you know, even if it's just versus the Russians, I mean, do we know about uh, numbers? Do we know uh, um, if, they're, if they're losing by a lot?
3: Well, the numbers are very hard to get a a clear view of because, of course, they're coming from either side with their own interpretation on it. But what's clear is that both sides are suffering extensive casualties in terms of manpower. At this point, Russia has lost a lot of equipment as well which has been very uh, difficult for it in terms of its campaign on the ground but just as Russia has lost a lot of troops so has Ukraine and it's got conscription so it's got uh, fresh people coming in but that will also become a problem for Ukraine the more this goes on and because it's more experienced fighters of course were the ones who are in there first so what you do is you bring in less experienced people who are conscripted um, and then over time that becomes very difficult for Ukraine as well.
1: Difficult, difficult situation. Rosalind Matheson, executive editor uh, for international government, Bloomberg News, uh, based in London, but uh, here in the States this week, uh, getting the latest. Briefly,
2: briefly here in New York and headed down to Washington, D.C., right? That's right. Power. That's where the power brokers are, Matt. And
1: that's where Ros Matheson needs to be. I mean, you know, there's just us here in New York and with some others. So anyway, appreciate that.
0: The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th.
1: Let's get right to our next guest because we got a lot to talk about. Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. So, Priya, you know, I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal. My 10-year treasury is kind of my first place to go and talk in rates. I got a little headline there. It's at 3% spot on. That's notable, I guess, but it just seems like we're in this trading range here for interest rates, and that, despite the fact that my Federal Reserve has said that it's raising rates pretty aggressively here. So... What do you make of that?
5: Sure. So thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I, I think rates are likely to be in a range for the near term because, as you said, the Fed is hiking. I think they want to see clear and convincing signs, in in Chepau's, uh words, of a decline, and they were not seeing it yet of inflation. But I think what's happened in the rates market is we're also starting to price in growth fears, which is why I think we stay in a. 275 three and a quarter 10 year range because when you start getting to the upper end of the range and we're right in the middle of the range now but if we sell off and i do think rates are likely with qt to get to that upper end of the range then the market's going to get concerned about growth fears and at what point are interest rates high enough that you start to impact interest sensitive sectors housing consumer durables you know the savings that we're all banking on the consumer those savings are getting depleted every day And so I think that the growth fears prevent rates from rising too much further out because we've priced in a lot, a lot in terms of Fed hikes have already been priced in. So I do think there's a ceiling there in terms of growth fears that prevents rates from rising a lot. And on the downside, which is why I think we stopped around that 275, is inflation is just too high. And so I don't think the Fed is ready to blink or even um, sort of suggests that a pause is likely. I do think they won't be able to hike as much as is priced in. So we like the front end. But the long end, uh, with inflation high, QT happening, I think that long end has some more room to rise.
2: How much of this is, I mean, obviously, if the Fed's gonna keep um, hiking rates and you know, the Econ 101 lesson is you don't wanna hold this paper because you're gonna be able to get something that yields more later. Um, but that's from the perspective of somebody who wants uh, to be clipping coupons, right? Are, are they drawn in at three, at three and a quarter to a point where it kind of puts a cap on uh, uh, on the um, yields that can, uh, how high they can rise?
5: Yeah. So you're bringing up the supply demand. I think supply demand is still negative for treasuries, meaning you know three and a quarter with inflation at six, eight, depending on which measure you're looking at. Um, yes, coupons are higher today than they were a year ago. But I think it's, I'm hard pressed to think that it's attractive. We're still seeing outflows from fixed income funds. We've had one week of inflow. So I still don't think there's mm. demand coming from, you know, how much interest rates have risen. Where the demand is coming from are people trying to hedge for recession risks or growth slowdown. And so if you have a risk asset in your portfolio, having some treasuries that will provide that hedging property, which I have to say, treasuries were not a great hedge in the first quarter, but that hedge has come back. I think now if growth slows down, yeah, those hikes are going to get priced in. So it's more from a macro economy slowdown, risk asset performance. That's where the demand for treasuries is coming from, but, not just from a rate standpoint.
2: Priya, we, we, I mean, the, a key question is um, how quickly you see inflation coming back down to, you know, the 2%, what we've decided, I guess, is an acceptable level. Does that the, come down to, to you know, 2 or 3%? at the end of 2023?
5: I struggle to see that or we we don't even have it at three. We have it a little bit above three at the end of next year. And so that's the tricky part. I mean, as much as the Fed is committed, I think, to price stability, the administration's uh, committed to it. There are aspects of inflation that are out of their control. Food, energy, even parts of shelter. We have a demographic shift in housing. And there just hasn't been enough creation of that housing in the last few years. So I think, um, you know, and I think this is a question, a tough question the Fed will have to answer by year end is do they are they OK with inflation decelerating? They clearly want a deceleration, but if it decelerates to three and a half, it's still significantly lower than here. Is that OK? Can they be a little more patient trying to get to that 2 percent target over four years rather than one year? So, you know, in our forecast right now, even so at the end of this year, we are four and a half on PCE at the end of next year, a little over three. But we think the Fed might be comfortable as long as it's heading in the right direction, as long as wage inflation, which is also an important part of this, is not accelerating. I think, you know, their tolerance ban will be tested by the market, but slowing growth will allow them to say, maybe we just have to tolerate high inflation for a while. But it's something I think we haven't really heard from the Fed yet, and that's still an open question.
1: All right, Priya Misra, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, we love getting uh, your thoughts on kind of where rates may be heading and what this Federal Reserve uh, may be thinking about as we parse through the data. Priya Misra is a Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities here. All right, let's talk uh, cybersecurity. We'll shift gears there. We're all putting more and more as we, you know, over the last two years, work from home, learn from home, putting more and more data uh, in the cloud, doing more and more with technology. And of course, that raises the concerns about data security, cybersecurity broadly defined. Our next guest is absolutely on the front lines of that. Gil Schwed, he's the CEO of Checkpoint Software Technologies. You can find that on NASDAQ CHKP is a ticker you put into your Bloomberg terminal. Gil, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, it just seems like your business cybersecurity is more important than it's ever been as we put more and more, or we engage more and more with technology, put more and more data in the cloud. Give us just your 30,000 foot view with where this tech stack is in terms of cybersecurity.
6: Hi, Paul, hi, Matt. Uh, First, you're absolutely right. We are more vulnerable than ever to cyber attack, both because we're dependent on the internet and the network so much, And also because the attacks are becoming more and more sophisticated, the software that we use on every device, on our laptop, on our, you know, home TV or a vacuum cleaner, each one of them has software. Unfortunately, all that software has vulnerabilities and the hackers do take advantage of that. Um, And we are at, uh, I think, almost all time high in terms of number of attacks.
2: So what's the answer? I mean, um, do you just have to keep building a better mousetrap over and over and over again?
6: First, we do. I mean, our the systems we build in our industry are all, are many of them are real-time updated and they try to adjust themselves all the time. We're building systems that try to stop attacks, even attacks that we don't know about, that using AI looks at the different... Uh, patterns of usage, and when they see something that's uh, suspicious, they just stop it. And uh, yes, we do have to uh, run as fast as we can to stop the attackers.
1: Give us a sense, Gil, I think what gets some people who don't live this every day, but gets them really concerned is when when they hear about state-sponsored cyber attacks, state-sponsored ransomware, that type of thing. Give us a sense of how that has evolved and kind of what you think it'll do going forward.
6: So first, many large, many advanced uh, economies and countries develop state-sponsored technologies to either spy on the enemy or even attack at time of war. The challenge is not that we are trying just to fight our government, we're not. The challenge is that these technologies fall into the hands of the wrong guys. And that's something, for example, last year there was a devastating attack on the city of Baltimore. Uh, The attack was by some foreign countries, but not foreign countries, foreign groups from foreign countries, but the technology they used was actually technology that developed by the NSA, that I think about a few miles from the same place, the U.S. National Security Agency. So the challenge that we have is that this is software technology and sooner or later, almost any attack technology falls into the hands of the wrong guys. By publishing information don't want to publish a all right looks
1: like we're having some technical
2: difficulties there with uh, Schwed with his uh, he was about to share way too much truth with us <laughs> yes I think and somebody hacked his phone up. line yeah yeah
1: exactly but I know this company is based in uh, Israel uh, as well but uh, I mean I just think this I mean we hear from everybody um, and it's just when it hits the news uh, every once in a while that it comes to people's attention but we hear companies talk about it all the time the amount they're investing in uh, cybersecurity because
2: every, it seems like most, if not every company uh, has a, a lot of data dependency. I gotta be honest with you, listening to Gil just now, I was struck by the realization that technology is gonna be the death of us all. <laughs> simply defined. It, we, are, we are basically engineering the end of our own world here. We should make a movie about that. At some point, AI is just gonna take over and you're not gonna worry about your social security number getting hacked. Right. K- Gil, let me just ask you. I think we got you back on the line here. Is technology going to be the end of us all? Is are we are we eventually going to face our globe our own global demise at the hands of like AI and technology?
6: I'm actually quite optimistic. I think technology has a bigger and bigger role in our lives, but if we look at our personal safety and so on, it's much better now than it used to be uh, 20 or 50 years ago. Uh, though the risks that we have to face are different.
1: Gil, you know, what are Gen-V cyber attacks and why do they matter?
6: Gen-V, or what we call Gen-5 cyber attack, are the most sophisticated attacks we see today. They are a, what we call a multi-vector, so the attacks get from one place, like an app you download into the phone, which turns into something that gets into your computer, but at the end gets the malware into the data center of on the cloud or at your company. They are usually very hard to spot. They are usually, every time they come, they look a little bit differently. So you can just say, this looks like an attack. And they can create a lot of damage. Sometimes they would hide and steal the data for a long period of time. Sometimes they would just create an attack that, uh, you know, on the same minute, take down the entire hospital or at the same minute, take down the entire nation. We just celebrate, not celebrate, we just mentioned... Last week, the, f- the fifth anniversary of the big attack on Ukraine, not the war in Ukraine now, but five years ago, there was a huge attack that took down the entire country. So these are pretty difficult attacks to deal with, and I think that's what we need to deal with today.
2: All right, Gil, thanks so much for going- joining us. Gil Schwed, there, I think the uh, longest. Serving CEO, CEO of a NASDAQ company. Of any NASDAQ company, which is pretty cool, talking about um, uh, cybersecurity that, in, in a sense, his company, Checkpoint, kind of invented. Yeah. You know, they they started uh, the, this whole firewall thing. and um, That well, just seems like a great business to be in. I mean, I just can't imagine a, a company Until ever, it's all over, Paul. Until it's all over. I
1: can't imagine a company saying, we're going to spend less this year on cybersecurity than we did last year. I just think every budget that comes in— you know, to the CFO is a higher budget for spending on. And that's good for the uh, checkpoints of the world and the other folks that cater to that.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state Influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: You know, one of the things that's definitely changed here during this pandemic, kind of a, uh, I'm not sure if that's an anticipated uh, fallout, but workers have a lot more leverage, it seems. People are saying, I'm not coming back to the office or, you know, it's such a tight market, I'm gonna go leave my current job for a better paying job. Um, It's just really changed the whole dynamic of the workforce and how and where you work. Uh, Renia Sethome joins us, she's a managing partner at Sethome Law Group. Renia, are these things, let's start just with the work from home, hybrid, how do you do it kind of thing, I guess, Companies, large and small, are still trying to figure it out, but it seems like the hybrid thing is kind of the preferred model that's emerging. Is that what you're seeing?
4: I'm hearing a variety of opinions on this from the employees. I'm certainly hearing that hybrid is here to stay, and that's what they're anticipating and what they're hoping for. But a lot of business owners are struggling with the hybrid model uh, for many reasons. You know, The economics of it and, of course, you know, building culture and managing teams – is more difficult when people are in disjointed um, parts of the country.
2: But you know, um, Rania, the thing is, um, a lot of employees want to have the hybrid option or even completely work from home, and a lot of their old, white, male bosses say, no, you have to be in the office. Um, If I want to work from home and I am producing just as much or even better than I would be in the office – but I get fired for not coming in. Do I have a case?
4: Uh, I don't believe so. As long as the rule is uh, applied the same for all employees, then I, I don't think you would have a case. But that's the debate right now. I work with a lot of small business owners, not you know the Fortune 500 or even uh, Fortune 2000, if there is such a thing. And they're not yet certain as uh, to productivity and whether it's better for employees to work from home or not.
1: All right, how about another issue? I'm employed at a tech firm in Silicon Valley. Pandemic hits. I go to Jackson Hole and relocate, and they say, fine, you can do your job there, but we're going to pay a Jackson Hole-level wages, not Silicon Valley-level wages. Is that okay?
4: I think that is probably okay from a legal perspective, but it is a very tough tough pill to swallow. You're doing the same work. You're the same person. You just moved your geography. I I don't think that's the best conversation to have with employees.
1: Is that conversation happening, though? Because I can see if I'm an employer, I would definitely want to have that conversation.
4: It it is. It is definitely happening. And a lot of uh, the reason for that is because of the additional financial and administrative burdens that come with allowing your workforce to work in states where you may not be you know already registered if you're already registered to do business there it doesn't make too much difference but if you have to now pay taxes there and do a whole host of other things Mm. like purchase workers compensation insurance in these other states then that conversation is taking place uh with a lot of stride now yes
2: yeah that's interesting you know my um my wife is looking to hire for a position and, and her company is willing to allow someone to work from home, but she says she can only hire from certain states, and I didn't really understand why, but I guess the point is, for companies, this is a difficult landscape to navigate because um, you've got to be able to pay workers' comp in different states or pay taxes in different states if you want to have employees who, I guess, have an IP address there, right?
4: Yes, that is true, and some of the laws are extremely uh, cryptic as to what does even working from home means So if you're working in another state and the company registers to do business there, are you really working from home? Or are you working in a cafe? And then if you get injured, who's paying for that? So it can get quite complicated.
1: So how do you think this is going to play out for the, the, the smaller businesses that you deal with, Rania? I would think they would have less flexibility, less resources. So what are you advising them or what are you seeing them do?
4: Well, I know get into exactly what I advise them to do. However, I I do have a discussion with them about the costs associated with expanding into states where they're not already, uh, you know, having employees. So a lot of the clients that I work with that are in fashion and tech, so they they marry both fashion and tech, they don't really have any brick and mortar, but they have limited uh, the states in which they'll allow people to work from home because of these additional burdens.
2: God, it's a whole new world out there. It's a is. brave new world, Paul It's Brady. a brave new world, I know.
1: And people are doing that uh, remote work. Uh, Rania, uh, set home. Thank you so much for joining us. Rania, set home managing partner, set home law group.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T.
1: Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q